0: What you're about to hear is a live episode of She Done It, recorded at the 2022 International Agatha Christie Festival in Torquay. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Our story today starts on Monday, the 1st of March, 1926. A woman opens a newspaper and finds herself drawn in by a story published inside. In this edition, the Daily Mirror has printed the first installment of a new whodunit, the Winteringham mystery, by a relatively unknown writer by the name of A.B. Cox. It starts with a scene that could be straight out of P.G. Woodhouse. A young man named Stephen Monroe is telling his confidential valet Bridger that the legacy they have lived upon since the end of the First World War is all gone. Consequently, he has taken a position as a footman at a country house named Wintringham Hall, an unthinkable climb down for a public school and varsity man who served in the trenches. Already, our woman reading is intrigued. She, like every other middle-class housewife in 1926, knows only too well that jobs for demobbed soldiers and experienced country house servants are equally hard to come by. And once Stephen is installed in his new position as footman, The compelling details keep coming. The grumpy and ancient lady of the manor has assembled an oddly mismatched house party. Her companion, Millicent, seems to be utterly crushed by the force of the old lady's personality. And her ward, Stella, appears to have a dark secret that she doesn't want anyone else to know. And then the big cliffhanger. Stephen, the new footman, opens the front door of Winteringham Hall to admit a guest and sees before him the girl he loves, but whose photograph he'd burned before starting his new life as a servant. What could be about to happen next? You'll have to buy the newspaper tomorrow to find out. And if that wasn't enough of an incentive, the canny editors have inserted a box into the text just before the end of the story, containing the following information. 500 pounds in prizes will be awarded to readers in connection with this serial. Full particulars will be announced next Thursday, readers are advised to cut out and retain the instalments for careful perusal again after the terms of the competition are published. 500 pounds. In today's money, that's over 20,000 pounds, an awful lot of money and certainly worth the trouble of following the story daily over the next couple of weeks. After the 15th instalment published on the 18th of March, 1926, the writer issues his challenge to his readers there are two questions that must be answered to be in with a chance of securing a prize. How did Stella disappear? And who caused her disappearance and why? The 500 pounds was to be awarded to the readers who send in the best answers to these questions. All you had to do to win was cut out the coupon on page 21 and send in your solution without delay. I don't know this for sure because she left us no evidence, but I like to imagine that our woman reading her newspaper like to do it over breakfast every morning. The Wintringham mystery would go well with toast and eggs, I think, her appetite for the morning meal and the new instalment coexisting. On that final morning then, perhaps she pushed the plates and cups out of the way so that she could scribble down her solution, drinking the dregs of her cold tea while she pondered the exact wording that best expressed her answers. She tore the coupon out of the newspaper, enclosed it with her solution in an envelope and sent it off to the Daily Mirror. After all, somebody had to win. Why shouldn't it be her? Why indeed? Because that woman's name was Agatha Christie and she was better qualified than most to solve the mystery. At the time when she sent in her solution to the Wintringham mystery, Agatha Christie was already a well-respected crime writer. Although the events I've just described took place three months before her breakthrough novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was published and nine months before the 11 day disappearance that would cause her to hit the headlines Her first five detective novels had been well-reviewed, and her Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot, had made an impression on readers already. In fact, this wasn't even the first time that she'd entered a competition like this. When she sent in her solution to The Mystery of Norman's Court by John Chancellor, which had been serialized by The Daily Sketch in 1923, she did so under her own name. But by the time she was entering The Winteringham Mystery, the name Agatha Christie was a little too well-known It might seem like an inside job if a famous mystery writer tried to scoop the top prize, like a professional slightly cheating by entering an amateur competition. Just to be safe then, she entered under her husband's name. Colonel A.E. Christie sadly didn't win the competition for the Winteringham Mystery, probably to Agatha's disappointment. In fact, nobody really won. A.B. Cox must have been very pleased with himself having outsmarted the thousands of readers from all over the world, none of whom provided entirely correct answers to both of the questions posed. The first and second prizes, planned to total 375 pounds, were instead divided between the five top entries that were deemed of equal merit. Agatha did, however, receive one of the five-pound consolation prizes, awarded by the editor to commend solutions that came close in an inventive or original way. That would be worth over 200 pounds today, a sum that would probably have gone some way towards soothing her wounded pride that she hadn't come out on top. And she got some material out of the experience too. Her 1931 novel, The Citifid Mystery, includes a newspaper competition as a major element of the plot. Later on in her career, she was also asked to judge similar competitions, a task which would have always carried with it the fond memories of when she was just Mrs. A. E. Christie, and could have some fun with these contests herself. Today, I think when we think of murder mysteries, we think automatically of books. Whether in print, digital or audio form, we're conditioned to expect that a whodunit will come to us in one single package to be devoured at a time or place of our choosing. But in the 1920s, when Agatha Christie was starting out on her long writing career, the format wasn't nearly so rigid. Books were big business, of course, but so were newspapers, magazines, and radio. During the golden age of detective fiction, it was relatively common for mystery stories to be serialized in magazines and newspapers, either before they appeared as books or at the same time. Crime short stories too, which we usually encounter in anthologies now, were most often written directly for magazine or newspaper publication. And writing fiction for the press was a very important way of how writers made a living back then. And indeed there were authors, like Marjorie Allingham's father, Herbert John, who specialised entirely in writing for newspaper serials and never really published anything in book form at all. It was especially important for mystery writers who were new to publishing as a genre, as it was finding its feet in the 1920s. It was therefore very common for a writer of fiction to supplement their income by writing stories for serialisation in the press, or indeed to publish their longer works first in that kind of way, and then later edit it into a single volume. That's what happened with The Winteringham Mystery and many others at the time. A.B. Cox wrote it first in the 15 instalments for publication in the Daily Mirror, and then the following year put it together as a book that appeared under the different title of Sicily Disappears. Even before her career was taken to a new level by the popularity of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, it was actually the sale of serial rights to her early novels that enabled Agatha Christie to take writing seriously as more than a hobby. She was astonished to receive 500 pounds from the evening news for serial rights to the man in the brown suit, a sum equivalent to about 20,000 pounds today, and with which she bought her first car. This aspect of publishing has all but disappeared today, but it was a great support to the up and coming writers of the 1920s. As I can tell you from personal experience, it can often take a long time for the money from book deals, even lucrative ones to actually appear in your account because publishing moves relatively slowly. You could be working on a book for years before it's published and before you actually receive your money. Whereas writing for the press, everything happens much faster. You could write a story one day, have it appear the next, and be paid the week after. For writers, then, this type of publication had really obvious benefits. But for the newspapers, too, it had upsides. Serials justified the high fees paid to writers because they helped to capture new readers and keep them coming back for each new instalment. At its best, the relationship between newspaper editors and crime fiction writers in the 1920s could be mutually beneficial. And both were always on the lookout for new opportunities and innovations to make what they published more interesting for readers and beneficial for themselves. And that's where the competition mystery comes in. In one sense, it was just a standard serialization with one story strung out over many days, with each part written to end on a cliffhanger so readers will be sure to buy the next edition. And this isn't anything new. Charles Dickens was doing it with Bleak House in the 1850s. But the addition of the prize for the correct solution, though, really amped up this effect. Not only did the reader want to keep buying the paper to see what happens in the story, they needed to know what happened so as to have a chance of submitting the right answer and winning the prize. It locked in sales for the duration of the serialization, ensuring that keen readers weren't likely to forget or miss a day. And if a proportion of those who bought The Daily Mirror just to get The Winteringham Mystery found that they liked the publication in general and wanted to keep buying it after the competition was over, so much the better. There was also something about the competition element that really gelled with the fundamentals of mystery writing. When Agatha Christie was reading The Winteringham Mystery in the spring of 1926, the rules of detective fiction that would end up being more codified as writers coalesced around the format were still a few years away but the sense of a good golden age mystery as a contest between writer and reader was already there. The notion of fair play was crucial in distinguishing detective fiction from other kinds of writing about crime, as in thrillers or sensation fiction. In a detective novel, the writer should play fair with the reader, revealing clues and suspects as the sleuth discovers them, so that the reader has a reasonable chance of working out the culprit. Final chapter reveals, or outlandish late revelations, were not considered good sport. The inclusion of maps, floor plans, and other diagrams were also part of this because they gave the impression of total transparency and that the reader was being let in on all aspects of the detective's case. Before the advent of the newspaper competition, some mystery writers were already formalising this competitive process in the shape of what was called a challenge to the reader. The early Ellery-Queen mysteries are notable for this, Um, about three-quarters of the way through the book. The narrator pauses in the story and sort of breaks the fourth wall to notify readers that they've been given all the relevant facts they need now to solve the case. And towards the end of the 1920s, one publisher took it even further and started issuing whodunits in a series titled Harper-Sealed Mystery Stories. And these were sold with a thin, unbroken paper seal around the final third of the pages. And the cover said, read to the seal, and if you can stop, if you can deny yourself the thrill of solving the story, return the book to the bookseller, and your money will be refunded. Like the prize offered to the newspaper for the correct solution to the story, it was a clever gimmick that simultaneously suggested that everything you need to know, the ending is in the first two thirds of the book, and that the plot was so gripping the publisher would stake money on readers having to find out what really happened. Works by John Dixon Carr, Murray Dalton, Freeman Wills Croft, and others all received this treatment. And we can see this dynamic at work if we go behind the scenes of the Winteringham Mystery competition for a moment too. It's thought A.B. Cox, which was a pseudonym for Anthony Barclay, it's thought that he actually proposed the idea to the Daily Mirror rather than the other way around. And in an article published alongside the final installment, he declared himself an eager reader of mysteries and said that when he was reading, he enjoyed being part of that battle of wits with the author. And he wanted to see if he could devise a story that would puzzle everyone who read it, hence the creation of a competition mystery to put this theory to the test. He said that he'd realized that rather than making the puzzle more intricate, it was more likely to deceive readers if it was simple, And it took him several months to come up with the idea for the story and then he rewrote it seven times before it was published. He seems to have become obsessed with the idea of the mystery story as a game with players, one of whom would triumph in the end. And given that thousands of people from all over the world entered the competition and nobody got the solution completely correct, I think we can say that Barclay was successful. He didn't get to take home the 500 pound prize, but I think we can say the honours of the competition went to him and Barclay was far from the only writer to experiment with the idea of a competition mystery. As I already mentioned, Agatha Christie had entered at least one other competition mystery that we know of, the mystery of Norman's Court by John Chancellor. She may never have written a story explicitly for publication as a competition in this way, but she was certainly involved with it as a publishing practice. In one case for her, it actually almost backfired rather spectacularly when the ABC Murders was published as a serial in 1935, Readers were invited to send in their solutions in the hope of winning a prize. It's a kind of challenge to the reader, isn't it? To say, we dare you to pit your wits against this great mystery writer and see if you can do better. To the consternation of editors and publishers, this competition was won by one reader who got every aspect of the plot correct. So much for Agatha's baffling new Poirot story. Luckily, that one super sleuth seems to have been an outlier and millions have since enjoyed the unfolding of the novel's solution without immediately working out who done it. And we could say that Christie had had a lucky escape. Edgar Wallace, the author of The Four Just Men, published that novel in 1905 as a serialized competition in the Daily Mail as a promotional tool to generate interest for his book. Unfortunately, he failed to state that only one first, second, and third prize would be given, and he ended up legally obligated to pay every single correct solution that was sent in. And so he had to declare bankruptcy and sell the copyright of the story for 75 pounds. Using the competition as a way to create publicity and sensation around the publication of a new novel seems like an obvious strategy, but sometimes it happened as a standalone event as well. In 1937, the Brazilian literary magazine A Novella launched a competition based on a story they titled A Murder on the Istanbul Express by an author called Sir Ronald McMunn. After each monthly instalment appeared, readers were invited to send in their ideas about who done it to the magazine's editors with the promise of glory for the first to crack the case. The final question posed to readers was who killed gangster Cassetti? That is a name that will be very familiar to readers of Agatha Christie's 1934 novel, Murder on the Orient Express. But before we accuse this Ronald McMunn of a terrible act of plagiarism, let's look a little closer. This story is Murder on the Orient Express in translation. The new title and name was a ploy by the editors of the magazine, who were concerned that if they printed the true title or author alongside their competition, Brazilian readers would look in the original English edition for the solution to the mystery rather than trying to work it out for themselves. And it seems to have worked. Only nine people got the answer right which seems to be a small enough number to suggest there was little or no cheating involved. There is evidence to suggest that Agatha Christie was still thinking about competitions as a way of playing the game with her readers well after the golden age period itself was over. In 1949, she came up with an idea for a competition in which she would write and publish the opening scenario of a mystery short story, and readers would then be invited to finish it and send in their own completions of what she'd started. Presumably Christie herself, and perhaps with some other experts, would then choose the best one as the winner. She wasn't the first to try this format, by the way. The Detective Story magazine in the US had been running what it called unfinished contests for years, in which the writer of a best ending to a published partial story would receive $100. But it certainly wasn't a common format in the UK. The sketch that Christie started making for this involved a scene that some astute Christie fans might recognise as soon as I describe it. In it a typist named Nancy arrives at a house for an appointment, lets herself in, and finds to her horror a bizarre collection of clocks, the dead body of a man she's never seen before and a blind woman. Agatha titled this scenario The Clock Stops and described how all the clocks showed different wrong times. For whatever reason though this competition never actually happened, but 12 years later Agatha dusted off the scenario she'd written and used it as the basis for a new borrower novel titled The Clocks. She changed some aspects of it, but the idea of a typist arriving at a house to find a corpse and a collection of stopped clocks remained. So the competition did achieve something, even if Christie fans never actually got to pit their writing skills against the writer herself. And Christie was far from the only writer to dabble in competitions when it came to mystery writing. In 1927, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published an article in The Strand magazine in which he finally bid farewell to readers of Sherlock Holmes, making rueful reference to the fact that he had, of course, tried to dispense with the character once already, only to resurrect him due to popular demand. But now, as the 1920s were coming to a close, the last collection of Holmes short stories, The Case Book of Sherlock Holmes, was about to be published. Holmes was getting on a bit too. Conan Doyle writes that, he began his adventures in the very heart of the later Victorian era, carried it through the all too short reign of Edward, and has managed to hold his own little niche even in these feverish days. So this time Conan Doyle was serious when he said goodbye to his fans. And he wasn't to know it, but he himself only had another couple of years to live. To mark this moment of farewell then, he proposed what he called a small competition as a little test of the opinion of the public. Conan Doyle wrote his own list of what he considered to be the 12 best Sherlock Holmes stories and left this in a sealed envelope with the editor of The Strand. The reader who wrote in with a list of a dozen titles that most closely coincided with the author's own selection would win 100 pounds and an autographed copy of his autobiography, Memories and Adventures. It's not quite the solution to a crime, but it is still a contest between writer and reader. Who knew Sherlock Holmes better, his creator or his fans? Another unusual competition mystery that I'm quite fond of was authored by Margot Neville, a pseudonym used by two Australian sisters, Margot Goida and Anne Neville Goida. They began publishing crime fiction with Murder in Rockwater in 1943. And in 1956, with the Olympics about to begin in Melbourne, the Goida sisters were commissioned by Australian Women's Weekly to write a sporting mystery that could be published as a competition for their readers, with the, with the winners receiving an all-expenses trip to the Games. Margot Neville more than rose to the occasion with Murder of Olympia. The story follows protagonist Irene Francis through her final day, and her interactions with her paramour, Larry Bannerman, who works for an architect's practice, but is also entering the Olympics as a sprinter. His friends fear that his entanglement with the married Irene will put him off his game for the big race, and their prediction unfortunately comes true when Irene goes missing and her body is eventually found in the river. The sister's regular detective, Inspector Grogan, is called in to investigate and considers Larry to be a major suspect. The upcoming Olympics is used cleverly as a backdrop in the story, meaning that readers were always aware of the prize awaiting them, even if they got the solution to the mystery only partially correct. As an excellent marriage of competition context and good mystery writing, Murder of Olympia really stands alone. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well known than the oft repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members, and witnesses – so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. But let's zoom out from the competition mystery for a second, and look at how this phenomenon fits into what else was happening in the world in the mid-1920s, when Agatha Christie was entering them under a false name, and the form was first gaining prominence with the likes of the Winteringham mystery. As well as now being referred to as the golden age of detective fiction, the period between the two World Wars was sometimes described as the era of the puzzle craze, as people mentally and physically exhausted from the traumas of the First World War turned to lighthearted activities to divert themselves. At the same time as the classic whodunit was becoming popular, other kinds of puzzle-based entertainment like jigsaws, Treasure hunts, crosswords, and all kinds of parlour games were also all the rage. And the critic Alison Light has described the effect of murder mysteries in this interwar period as the mental equivalent of pottering. And the same could be said of all kinds of puzzles. Competitions, puzzles, mysteries, they all offer a clear-cut structure with rules and a winner and a loser. There's no uncomfortable ambiguity that you have to deal with. Light expands on this similarity by terming the crime fiction of the time a literature of convalescence. Whodunnits were the literature of emotional invalids, shock absorbing and rehabilitating, like playing endless rounds of clock patients, she says. And anyone who spent any time being unwell will know exactly the feeling that she's describing, that itchy period after you're no longer so ill that you can't move or sit up, but before you're well enough to get out of bed and resume your normal life. Doing a jigsaw or reading a detective story feels soothing, but trying to do it or read anything without such a rigid, predictable structure can be a bit much. Repetitive activities like knitting, word puzzles or card games fit this moment perfectly, seeming to use just enough of your brain and no more. Somerset Maughan had rather a good take on this in his essay, The Decline and Fall of the Detection Story, in which he describes how he discovered the convalescent power of detective fiction while literally in bed convalescing. He spent the first part of the First World War receiving treatment in a sanatorium for tuberculosis in the North of Scotland. And there he learnt how pleasant it is to lie in bed with aspirin, a hot water bottle, a rum toddy at night, and half a dozen detective stories. I'm prepared to make an ambiguous virtue of an equivocal necessity, he wrote. In the context of the post-First World War period, Light calls this that lack of capacity for concentrated thinking which plagued the returned soldier and suggests that those at home who endured years of waiting and assuming the worst were equally afflicted with it. The cure was pitting their wits in a struggle that was cerebral without involving strain. And that's just what detective novels and the other kinds of puzzle that were gaining popularity in the 1920s provided. They relieved anxiety rather than generating strong emotion. We've seen a version of this, myself, I think, in the last couple of years, as the strain of continued pandemic and repeated lockdowns has pushed us towards these kind of activities again. It's not a surprise, I think, that new crime novels with strong ties to the tropes of the golden age, like those by Richard Osman, for instance, have been very popular. Even the genre's critics saw the similarities between the classic mystery novel and the other types of puzzle games popular at the time. In his famous 1945 New Yorker essay, Who Cares Who Killed Roger Ackroyd? The critic Edmund Wilson says that the reading of detective stories is simply a kind of vice that for silliness and minor harmfulness rank somewhere between smoking and crossword puzzles. But people love Udunnits and crosswords alike because they're absorbing and distracting, but not disruptive. A competition mystery seems like an excellent next advance on this idea. It combines the predictable structures and suspense of a mystery story With the good clean fun kind of competitiveness that comes with doing a crossword or a treasure hunt. Put in this light, it seems like the perfect golden age activity. And here we have an example of what we think is the first ever crossword puzzle from the New York Post in 1913. They did a typo and it says word cross puzzle, which they corrected two weeks later. Let's go back to Agatha Christie for a minute. As well as entering competition mysteries and coming up with the ideas for her own, She also wrote perhaps the purest expression of this puzzle craze phenomenon in the late 1929. The chairman of the tourism committee on the Isle of Man approached Christie with the idea of creating a hybrid mystery story and treasure hunt that would incentivize people to visit the island and enjoy all it had to offer. Christie was very taken with this idea and she made a research trip to the Isle of Man in spring 1930 to scope out the landscape before penning her story. Entitled Manx Gold, her story revolved around two cousins who returned to the Isle of Man for the reading of their eccentric uncle's will. This document sends them on a treasure hunt around the island, following clues written in verse to find the location of the next cache. Readers were supposed to follow the clues themselves and discover four snuff boxes that had been buried around the island, which they could then exchange at the tourism office for a 100 pound prize, worth over 4,000 pounds today residents of the Isle of Man were unfortunately ineligible for the prize since it was thought that Christie's clues to different locations on the island would be too easy for them to crack. The upcoming publication of the story was advertised heavily and then it began serialisation in five instalments in newspapers in the northwest of England from which the Isle of Man is an easy trip for a weekend. It was also made into a booklet titled June in Douglas and distributed at hotels for visitors to pick up. I understand these are now highly collectible, very rare. So if you ever see one in a charity shop, be sure to buy it. As a result of this rarity, the story remained mostly unknown until the 1990s when it was rediscovered by Christie expert, Tony Medowa and republished with an editorial note in the collection, While the Light Lasts. So there is another way to, to read it if you don't find one of these. It seems that as a treasure hunt mystery hybrid, Max Gold was considered to be a success, well worth the investment in Christie's 60 pound fee, about 3,000 pounds today, and the 400 pound prize money for the winners. But for whatever reason, the experiment was not repeated. And as far as I know, it remains the only major golden age treasure hunt mystery. But the publishing of competition mysteries continued throughout the golden age period. While the classic whodunit was in its heyday and newspaper serialization was a common publishing route it was a popular way of entertaining readers and generating sales. Anthony Barclay, author of The Winteringham Mystery under his A.B. Cox pseudonym, and a co-founder of the Detection Club in 1930, seems to have been especially fond of it as a form. Several of his other novels received this treatment in the press, right up to his final detective fiction in the late 1930s. Both his novels Not To Be Taken and Death in the House appeared as competitions in John o. London's Weekly, in 1938 and 1939, even though the Second World War was on the horizon and the convalescent power of the mystery novel and the puzzle craze was on the wane. Barclay himself would remain very engaged with detective fiction for the rest of his life as a critic, but he didn't publish any more of his own work after these competitions in 1939. But although we deem the golden age of detective fiction to have officially concluded in 1939, the style and structures that enjoyed such popularity in that period have endured and so has the competition mystery, albeit in some slightly less high-profile ways. There are some nice examples from the 1940s and 1950s, such as MacDonald Hastings' Mr. Cork's Secret, which appeared in two parts in Lilliput magazine in 1952, with a prize of 150 pounds offered for the best solution sent in before the second instalment appeared. In a nice touch, when this story was republished in the British Library crime classics anthology, Crimson Snow, the two parts were kept separate in the book so that today's readers can have the same experience as Hastings intended, and a chance to try and solve the mystery before reading The Solution. There's also more recent examples, such as The Crime of the Century by Kingsley Amis, which appeared as a six part serial in the Sunday Times in 1975, intended for summer holiday reading. Although entirely modern in setting and style, the rules of the competition remain very familiar from the golden age, with readers invited to send in their solutions after the fifth instalment. The winning entry by one Howard Martin was printed alongside Amos's own ending to the story. And when the book was published in book form in 1987, Amos wrote that he found the serialized competition form very restrictive, since to fit the word count and create the desired cliffhanger at the end of each part, He had to cut back his manuscript brutally. He wrote that he pared the whole thing down, getting rid of anything that wasn't plot, including characterizations, descriptions of places and journeys, inner thoughts, any kind of feeling, whatever might be called extra. Today, the most common kinds of competition for crime fiction are for writers, not really for readers. This transition happened slowly over the 20th century. Agatha Christie, for instance, was a judge for a Don's Detective Novel Writing Competition that the Collins Crime Club ran in the 1960s, looking for the next Michael Innes. Today, you're far more likely to be invited to submit your ideas about mysteries with a view to being published yourself, rather than just because you're a reader who likes to solve puzzles. But there are traces of the competition mystery out there still, and signs that the difficulties of the last few years have brought it attention, just as it has the classic who done it for. Which brings me to Kane's Jawbone, perhaps the best, ongoing combination of the puzzle craze, the golden age, and the competition mystery. Edward Powers Mathers, a crossword setter known as Talk created this literary puzzle in 1934, and it takes the form of 100 pages of a mystery story arranged in the wrong order, each page breaking off in the middle of a sentence. To solve the puzzle, the player must simply get the pages in the right order. Two people solved it in 1935, and received the prize of £25 each. The solution has never been made public and versions of the puzzle became scarce until it was republished in a new edition in 2019. Four people are now known to have solved Kane's Jawbone, including the comedian John Finnemore, who took six months to do it at the start of the COVID pandemic. It also became a viral sensation on TikTok last year, with hundreds of people documenting their attempts to solve it. I'm not aware of a TikTok winner yet. It isn't quite the same, as Agatha Christie writing into the Daily Mirror with her solution to the Winteringham mystery in 1926, but the spirit and excitement of the competition mystery seems to be very much still alive today. Thank you very much for listening. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan Macalise, Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done it Book Club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.